welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Please subscribe to this podcast for future episodes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Arrangers Podcast. Thanks for joining us. This is Aaron Edenstrom, and I'm very, very excited to present you with Part 2 of our wonderful interview with David Berger, who is a world-class, world-renowned arranger, composer, transcriber, historian, and overall a very, very wonderful person who was extremely generous to give us his time. If you listen to part one of the interview, you no doubt came away with lots of great knowledge and information that David was willing to share with us. And the second part is no different. There's really a lot of great stuff here. Just to give you a little bit of context on where this interview leaves off, uh, we were discussing with David the Harlem Nutcracker that he toured the world with. So this follow-up question by Drew is directly relating to that discussion. We really hope you enjoy part two of David Berger's interview. Here we go. You know, that leads me to, a, to a, I guess, a question we've been wanting to ask you, and that is, for this great project that you did, um, you used some of Duke Ellington's music, uh, the, his original Nutcracker Suite, and I would assume that you, uh, you did the transcription off of that, correct? Correct. Had you been uh, assigned to do uh, Duke's music prior to that? Oh, yes. I mean, this was... This was 1996. So actually, the way this came about was in 1989, I was conducting the Lincoln Center uh, Band, and we did Ellington's Nutcracker as part of one of our concerts in the summer. Mm -hmm. And it got reviewed in uh, the New York Times. And this choreographer, Donald Byrd, not the trumpet player, but the choreographer, he read the review and he said, oh, I didn't know that uh, Ellington did a Nutcracker. I would love to choreograph that. So he made some phone calls and eventually got to Duke's sister, Ruth, and uh, she ran his publishing company, Tempo Music. And uh, he said, I'd love to to, uh, choreograph this. Uh, how do I get the music? And she she said, well, call David. He's He's got it and he can conduct it. He's your guy. So I had lunch with with Donald, and I pitched him uh, the same thing I pitched to Alvin Ailey 20 years before that. Well, actually not. Uh, so I pitched it to Alvin in, 17, in, in 1975, and Alvin didn't want to do Nutcracker. I said, oh, don't you like to Nutcracker? And he said, nah, it's, I do, but there's too many Nutcrackers. It doesn't really inspire me. Uh-huh. So I kind of sat on it, and then, and then we did this thing in 89, which is you know, 14 years later. And then, so I had lunch with Bird. I pitched the idea of doing a full-length Nutcracker, and he said, um, "Okay, um, I'm in. I'm in. We'll do it." He said, "But it's going to wow. take me a while to raise the money because this is going to be really expensive." Uh, he said, "But you know, when I call you, don't forget." You know, I said, "Okay." So like five years went by, and then he calls me and he says, uh, uh, "I got the money to do the Nutcracker." Uh, you haven't forgotten? I said, yeah, actually, I completely forgot about the whole thing. But yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in. <laughs> So he said, well, there's only there's a little bit of a complication in that um, in order for me to get the funding, I've got somebody who's going to write some hip-hop music, and I've got somebody who's going to write some gospel music. And I said, well, that sounds like it's going to be hard to 
put together into a cohesive piece with any kind of integrity. He said, don't worry, I'll figure it out. He said, just, you know, write some themes and uh, I'll meet you in a few weeks and you can, you know, play the themes for me. And tell, you know, okay, fine. So I did that. And so I showed up and by that time, the guy who was writing the gospel music died. Wow. He didn't contribute anything. So he said, keep wow. going. So I kept writing more stuff. And then there was like a deadline where everything had to be in and the, and the hip hop guy didn't, he didn't turn anything. Wow. So he said, oh, no. you've got the whole project, which is exactly the way we planned it originally. It took three years then to get it up. From that, oh, that was wow. 94. And we did a, we just did the Ellington part of it. We did a showcase of that to raise some money to get to the next stage where we did a very cut down version. It was just a rhythm section and uh, maybe half of the dancers so that we actually could work out how the, you know, the story and everything. And then that raised enough money so that the following year, we uh, we could do the full production, which wound up costing about a million and a half. Ooh, wow, incredible! I guess that I guess that leads into the next question perfectly, which is since you had been transcribing that Duke Ellington music and and so on, you know, I uh, how when did did that start with the Nutcracker Suite and and maybe. Could you talk about uh, just transcribing music in general and and what uh, maybe a process that you go through and how you go about double checking if possible and just you know as you're you're kind of the leading authority in the world on transcribing uh, and particularly Duke Ellington's music so uh, it's it's something I'd, we definitely want to talk about on the episode today. Well, when I was growing up, you couldn't you couldn't order any scores. There were no jazz scores to be bought. You know, especially Ellington right. or Basie, all of the ones I was interested in. I mean, you couldn't get that. I mean, even when you bought charts that were published for school bands, like Sammy Nestico or somebody like that, you wouldn't get a full score. You would just get like a conductor part, which would just have like the lead lines and the chord changes. Mm. So not much help there. I wanted to be an arranger and composer. And so I figured I'm going to have to listen to the recordings and try to figure out what they're doing. So I did a little bit of that. It was very painstaking in the beginning. As I went along, I got a little better. And then uh, when Duke died, I had the opportunity to join the band, played in the band for about five months, during which time Mercer, or Duke's son, he was the leader, and uh, he had me uh, transcribe a few of the charts that he said had gotten lost. Hmm. So I did, I did a few of those for him. And at the, at the same time, I started working for Chuck Israels. And Chuck put together this band called the National Jazz Ensemble, which was the first real jazz repertory company. Hmm. And um, I did, oh, I don't know, a lot of transcribing for him because he wanted to do like Ellington and Basie and Lunsford and Jelly Roll Morton and Coltrane and Miles. You know, he wanted to do the whole history of jazz. And so I, he said, Could you, you know, we'll do some of our own arrangements, we'll do some of our originals, but we need to transcribe a lot of the classic charts. What do you think? You want to give it, do you think you can give it a shot? I said, well, I'll, go, I'll give it a try. I don't know. I haven't done too much of this, but I'll. So I, I, I did some Ellington and Basie pretty much at the beginning, and I guess I did a fairly good job, and, uh, and the word got out that I could do this, and people started hiring me. And Alvin hmm. Ellie hired me to do uh, a lot of Ellington stuff for him, and uh, a lot of people. And um, I became friends with uh, Stanley Crouch, 
Uh, he's a writer mm-hmm. in New York okay. and um, an author and a columnist. And he loves Duke Ellington. And, uh, and so we became really good buddies. And, then, and he was also my best friends with Winton Marcellus. And Winton was um, approached by a producer at, at Lincoln Center named Alina Bloomgarden. Alina wanted to start a summer series. The first year, I think it was three concerts. And uh, in 1987, and uh, and she wanted Winton to be the artistic director, and uh, he wasn't really very wow. involved that first year. They just the concerts were like sm- some small group stuff, and then the following year, Crouch was the ad- artistic advisor for this, and uh, he said we got to do a Duke Ellington concert, and Winton says, well, I don't know anything about that music, and uh, and Alina said, well, who do we get to do, you know? And he said, well, call David. So I got this call from Alina, and she said, we want to do a Duke Ellington concert. What do you do? And I said, well, I'll transcribe it off the records, and um, we'll, you know, I'll hire a band, and, uh, and, we'll, um, and I'll conduct it. And we'll, it's wow. okay, good. Let's have a meeting with Winton. And, and so we, we had a meeting, and um, well, what pieces do you want to do? And uh, I said, I'd like to do Such Sweet Thunder. Crouch says, perfect. Uh, hmm. and then, um, and then he said he wanted to do sweet Thursday. I said, okay, I can transcribe that too. And then I said, well, I've got this, uh, sweet that I put together of, of the music from anatomy of a murder, which is a movie that mm-hmm. Ellington did the score for. And I, so I, I said, we could do that. And then, and then for encores, we had a few, you know, we play like cottontail and stuff like that. Sure. Uh, things like what they used to be, I think, whatever, you know, some stuff I had already transcribed, but I, I had done. Maybe fifty Ellington transcriptions. Wow! By that time, wow, which is more than anybody else. Yeah, of course. But I did hundreds for Jazz at Lincoln Center. Oh wow! Now Ellington and Strayhorn, I've done well over five hundred, maybe close to six hundred of their of their. Plus, I've done a lot of transcriptions of other people's stuff. So now you want to know the process? What mm-hmm. I do. Would love to. I do the bass part first, generally. In almost every case, that's what I do. Unless, well, let's see, sometimes, even then I, uh, well, sometimes if I have like, uh, like a, like some existing parts, mm-hmm. uh, I'll put those on score paper, but mm, a lot of times I'll still put the bass part on first because the bass, it's pretty easy to hear. And right. I have a little trick for that. I use a, a program where I can raise it up an octave. Ah, yeah, and that makes it very audible. Hmm. So you just have to be careful when you do that. You know, yeah. check it back at regular speed afterwards, and uh, right, right, make sure that that you weren't picking up some overtones. Uh, what program do you use to do that? Oh, I use something called uh, the Amazing Slow Down, Amazing Slow Downer, something like that. Uh huh. It's also a program program called Transcriber, which a lot of people use. And sure. That it might even be better. I, I haven't checked it out yet. Mm-hmm. But these programs are really nice because they're digital. You can, you know, you can slow them down without changing the pitch, or you can change the pitch without altering the tempo. Mm-hmm. Right. Of course. That's really handy. In fact, I was about to do some transcribing today. I haven't gotten to it yet. It was a Jimmy Lunsford record that that I wanted to do. And this was kind of unusual that uh, at the Smithsonian, they had, they had one part from the, that, that remained 
from the score. And it's, and it's, it's a side Oliver arrangement and mm. the piano part is written in size hand. And that's all there is, is the piano part. But the piano part oh, has so wow. much information in it that that's a right. really good place. To, uh, so then, but even still, I started, I put the bass part, you know, I did the mm-hmm, bass part first. Mm-hmm. And um, now I'm, I've got to do all the other parts. By the way, just speaking of style, I've got a good style of a story. Uh, oh, yes. Let's hear it. I got to know Sai a little bit. And, and so the first time I met him, it was, it, well, it was my birthday and my girlfriend at that time took me to the rainbow room because Cy, Cy Oliver had a band that was playing at the rainbow room and she knew that I was a big fan of size. So we went, you know, there are people that are dancing, whatever. And so I approached Cy and I asked him if he could play some of the stuff that he wrote for Lunsford because I love that music. And, and so during the break, he came over to our table and I told him that, you know, I've been transcribing some of your stuff and he says, Oh, well, you have to come over to the house. I'll show you all the scores. And uh, oh, fantastic! And then this is like you know that Billy Crystal movie where um, where they 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 go out west and they're like herding cattle and um, oh god, I don't think I've seen that one. Well, anyway, it's it's a it's a funny movie and uh, and there's this this real tough cowboy and he says says to Billy Crystal, "You want to know the secret of life?" And he says, "Yeah," and he holds up one finger. And it was just like that. And, and Sai holds up one finger. And he says, huh. when you're writing an arrangement, focus on one thing. Mm. Don't confuse your audience. Mm. That's golden. City Slickers? Is that it? City Slickers, that's it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Curly oh. is the character who does that. You know, so he's, he holds up one finger. Oh. Right. We'll have to watch that. Yeah, so yeah, transcribing, I do the bass part, and then I do all the stuff that's easy to hear. The lead lines are usually easy, or if our part is sticking out. And I, if I can get the top and the bottom of anything, mm-hmm. you know, if I know like the baritone part, and I know the lead alto part, then pretty much the other, usually the other parts are going to be in between. Uh-huh. Of course. I mean, it's not automatic, but 99 yes. times out of 100, that's true. And if right. you know what the instrumentation is, uh, you know that there are five saxophones or there are four saxophones, however many there are. That helps. Uh, although sometimes, sometimes the discographies are wrong. Hmm. Right, right. Uh, there's an Ellington recording called The Unknown Session, and Paul Gonzalez is not listed. Oh, wow. At least he huh. wasn't on the original record. He wasn't listed as being there. There was no, there was just three saxophones. I mean, there were two saxophones. There was no tenor listed. Just alto and baritone, and yet I can hear his part. Mm. Right. So you know there he is. And then I I actually found some of the, the scores at the Smithsonian, and for sure he's there. Yeah. When you went to Cy Oliver's house and you checked out the scores, where did you never it? got there? Oh, you never, never got there. Oh. Never got there. We, every time we would see each other, he said, "You got to come over," you know. And then oh. you know, I was out of town, or he was, out, you know, whatever. It just never happened. I worked with his wife. She was a, a singer, and we worked for Alvin Ailey together for years. But uh, and every time, I, you know, Cy was always real friendly and great. You know, he had this great oh. smile. Yeah, and such a beautiful arranger. His music is just so humorous. And anyway, so so this is the other thing I said. You know, he he said, uh, "You know how much money I made writing those those arrangements for Lunsford." I said, "No." He said, 
$3 a piece. Ooh. And that included <sighs> copying the parts. Wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, he made wow. up. After he left Lunsford in 39, he joined Tommy Dorsey. And I'm pretty sure Dor- Dorsey paid him quite well. Oh, that's good. Good. <laughs> that's good. So I was very... He was very uh, prolific all through the 40s and, and 50s. You know, he was with Lunsford in the 30s, but you know, then in 39, he went to he went over to Dorsey, stayed with him for quite a while, I think until 40 through 46. And then he did a lot of studio work, and he was so busy. A lot mm-hmm. of times, he could, he, it was just more than, than more music than he could write. Huh. And so he wow. hired ghostwriters. Al Cohn actually used to ghostwrite a lot for no kidding. Versailles. Yeah. Wow. wow. Well, that's an education right there. Yeah, I used to actually, I used to ghost for Al, so it was kind of... Uh, oh, very cool. So can you talk about that ghostwriting process a little bit? Like, because, I, mean, I mean, for me and Drew, I maybe we've done a little bit of stuff like that, but it's not maybe as, as much of a common thing for our generation. No, there's not that much work anymore. Yeah. But um, especially when you're doing, you're doing movies or you're doing uh, Broadway shows... There's a very limited amount of time to get the music written. It's almost impossible for any any one orchestrator to do a to do a whole Broadway show, because mm-hmm. um, the whole production is only six weeks, and you've got 800 pages of score to write. Mm, right, That's an awful lot. Yeah. And, you know, plus, you got to go to meetings and and rehearsals and things. So it's very often you have to call in somebody else to to help you with it. So I've, I've gotten to work on a number of productions like that. And, and record dates, too. You know, very often uh, you'll get called for something and uh, uh, it's a few days away and you don't have enough time to write all the charts. Or mm. somebody else, one of your friends doesn't have time to do all of them. You know, I used to ghost for um, uh, Ralph Burns as well. And I've um, uh, done some things for Quincy Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's... Yeah, it's uh, the guys that are really busy. They, you know, they tend they want to call like the people they know that that will do a good job. And I used to, I remember, I, I was upset early in my career. I said, I mean, I'm doing all this ghostwriting for other people, and nobody knows who I am. How am I going to get right. any work? And I said, it's kind of unfair. And uh, I remember talking to the president of the local, uh, the union, you know, here, and he said, well, you know. If Ralph Burns is doing something for, you know, say he's doing a movie and they got $50 million invested in this movie and the producer, he doesn't know you, you can understand why Ralph can't tell him that you wrote some of the music. Um, Yeah. They don't want to hear about that. I say, I understand all that. But what happens is eventually you wind up getting stuff. I know that Billy Byers ghosted a lot for Quincy Jones. You know, some of those like um, records that, uh, that Quincy did like for Basie and the, in the 60s, Billy wrote a lot of those charts, and then the next record is arranged by Billy Byers. He did the whole record, right? So, voila! Yeah, he came into his own, and yeah, yeah. But he worked a lot of years for, uh, for Quincy. He played trombone in Quincy's band, and uh, and did he posted a lot of charts for Quincy. Posted other people. I mean, and Ellington too. Ellington had guys that ghosted for him. Gerald Wilson did some some ghosting for. Uh, for Ellington, I asked Gerald about that, and um, and he said, at first, I was really honored when Duke would put his name on one of my charts, but after a while, I got kind of pissed. <laughs> That's funny. 
That's perfect. Yeah, Gerald was uh, he was a feisty guy and a really great writer. Yeah, he was great. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, it's a good way to start out. You know, it's like, um, you know, when you're, when you're young and you, you're looking for work and uh, uh, an established writer, if you, could, if you could do some work for established writers, it's really good. I mean, in the, in the olden times, you know, like uh, uh, the classical composers like Verdi and uh, Beethoven, people like that, they had students that, that would cop, copy their music for them. Because, and I copied for Gil Evans. You know, that was, I had that job for a little while. I know Maria Schneider always talks about doing that, but before, long before her, I, I did that. Yeah. I did it so that I could learn his music. Yeah. I didn't make a lot of money doing it, but it wasn't about that. It was like, I got to look at Gil's scores and, and ask him questions. One of the questions I asked him was, what is your aesthetic? What do you, he says, oh, I'm just trying to get it to sound like Billy Strayhorn. Huh. Wow. <laughs> And I asked, I asked Brookmeyer the same question a few years later, and he said, oh, I'm just trying to get it to sound like Gil. So I guess those guys were terrible failures because they made it doesn't sound Right. <laughs> because they sound so yeah. unique to their, to their own style. Yeah. I mean, you could see where it, there was a germ of that, uh-huh. but, but they didn't let that, that handcuff them. They, they were able to be themselves you know to get, right. i think this is really important a lot of a lot of players they they want to play like coltrane you know yeah that's a dead end don't do that be be yourself so duke said uh, uh, uh better a first-rate you than a second-rate johnny hodges huh <laughs> wow. yeah I and mean, it's good when you're a student you want to learn how to play you know in all these different styles and you want to learn how to write and you know in all these styles and but whenever I start out to write, I, oh, I'm going to do something that's kind of like a Count Basie thing. And then after a while, it kind of goes where it wants to go. It's, you know, I, or I'm going to write something that's going to be like Thad Jones. But then I've got my own stuff that it gets into. It's, mm-hmm. it's inevitable that the, uh, this is, you know, this is like uh, Neil Simon, you know, the, the playwright? Yeah, yeah. Right? So he was a writer for, um, for Sid Caesar, Caesar's Hour. Uh-huh. And, um, and it was a room full of writers. I think there were 12 of them. Um, his brother, Danny, was one, and uh, Larry Gelbart, and uh, all these really great comedy writers. And so one day, Neil comes in, and he says, you know what, I've decided I want to write plays. Oh, well, you want to write plays? you got to get this book. This guy, he's like, he's the expert, and he wrote this book on how to do it. That's the Bible. He says, oh, okay. So he went out, he got the book, he read the book. And in the book, the guy says, so you have to plot out your, your show. You know, you have your first act, you have your second act. These things have to happen at these points. And you got all your action in place. And then after all that's plotted out, then you, go, you can go write your dialogue. So he said, right, right. I, tried, I did that. I started writing. But the characters wanted to say other stuff and other things wanted to happen. Huh. I said, <laughs> I knew what he was talking about. Yep. Because when I first started writing, when I was in high school, I got this book on how to power range and it said so you want to plot out your chart you know, eight bars of the melody and then the second time through the trombones are going to have the background and then on the bridge the trumpets but and then you, know, you go through the whole chart like that and, you have, and then you can start writing well i tried to do that but but the chart wanted to go someplace else right yes the the music tells you wants it wants to go some uh, in a different direction 
Yeah, let the characters speak for themselves. Huh, yeah. Anytime I've tried to, you know, sometimes you think of a really great ending, you know, you're like in the middle of the chart, oh, I got this great ending. But when you get there, you can't use it. Right. Because it's right. somewhere else. Yeah, so it's best not to stick that ending on your piece. Right. <laughs> yeah, get the yeah. ending that it really needs to be. Uh, yeah, I'm, Brookmeyer said pretty much this, the same stuff about but letting the piece write itself. Uh-huh. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Get to a certain at the very beginning, you know, when you start to write, before you figure out what the piece is about, then you kind of, you try you're feeling things out. But then, for me, once once that first chorus is done, by then I, the rest of the piece writes itself, and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm barely holding onto the pencil, you know. That's beautiful. Yeah. So like I, I don't want to, I don't want to force myself on it. The character of the piece is is really determined in pretty early on. Yeah, I don't usually write the intro first. I usually wait until after I know what the piece is about. Sure, sure. So does it start with like a lead sheet or, or how do you usually kind of get started on a piece if it if it doesn't have a preconceived form or something like that? Well, if I'm if I'm doing an arrangement of somebody else's tune, I'll I'll I go to the piano and I'll just play through it a few times. Sure. Until you know, I'll come up with some some special voicings or uh just a way of phrasing the tune or or a certain rhythm, but it just also at a certain point I'll know. Well, this is the character of this piece, and then I'll get out the score paper and I'll put it down. If I'm doing like a just a piece from scratch, I'll usually just sit at the piano and I'll just start to play something, and pretty quickly I'm I'm on the score paper and and it just I don't know. <laughs> Who is it? it? Somebody, wait a minute. This is good. This is good. Somebody. Uh, went to a concert and was seated next to Stravinsky. I can't remember who it was now. Oh, I think somebody I knew. Anyway, so they, they asked him, so Maestro, would you mind if I asked you a question? I said, no, not at all. He said, um, what do you think about when you're writing music? How do you, what is your method of writing music? He says, I put the pencil on the paper and it just happens. The music happens. Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm. But I think he was really... Not telling all because he was a, he was a he was a big he was more like Beethoven than he was like Mozart you know Mozart just the stuff just spun out yeah 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 no no that but he just it 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 was pretty conceived right right from the start and right and it was just he could write as fast as as fast as he could write like Ellington was like that too uh huh mm-hmm. for the most part uh, whereas Beethoven reworked his stuff you know we have all these notebooks so we know how he Editing. Kept, yeah, constant. And, and Stravinsky, too. So I think there's no one way to write. I mean, for me, mostly, I'm, I'm more from the Mozart school, but, but some pieces need to be, once, once we start to rehearse them, I, sometimes I have to prune them a little bit. Mostly, I don't do too much. Mostly, they work. But uh, occasionally, you know, maybe every two or three pieces I have to make some changes. I, there are a few pieces where I had a, where I've rewritten the introduction three or four times until I got one that really worked. Introductions are hard for me. Codas are easy. For Ellington, introductions are uh, pretty easy, but uh, codas, he couldn't figure out. That hmm. was really hard. <laughs> so everybody's different. And whatever, my advice is always, whatever works for you, that's the one. That's what, you know, some people like Billy Byers, he wrote nine to five every day. I'm not like that. I I write when I need to or when I'm inspired. 
Sure. You know, either there's a deadline and then I have to get some stuff done or I just, no, oh, that would be fun to do. And then a month can go by. So when was the last chart I wrote? Uh, might have been a month ago. Uh, but you know, sometimes I could be writing a chart a day for weeks. Hmm. You know? That's crazy. I'm a fast writer, so I generally it takes me. People always, say, how long does it take you to transcribe a piece? And it's, you know, a normal chart is usually a day, uh-huh. maybe eight or ten hours. And it's the same thing for writing a chart, about that eight or ten hours. Sure. Wow. Wow. Yeah, but I've done a lot of charts. You know, the more of you course. do, the yeah. faster you get. Yeah. But it's also how good are you at making up your mind? You uh, got choices. Right. Exactly. And how good are you at following your instincts? Sure. Mm-hmm. How much do you trust your instincts? And I think that's Certainly. really important. I'm a firm believer that uh, the best music comes from your subconscious, and you want to mm-hmm. tap into that, and then just use your conscious mind to uh, to polish it a little bit. You know, maybe uh, sure shape it a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, it might be. Well, yeah, this it might be better if I leave this measure out. You know, maybe yeah, editing. Yeah. Sure. Just little things here and there, but uh, or if you get stuck, then you want to say, "Well, what are my what are my choices of where I could go from here?" And then I would think of some stuff, and then immediately get back into my subconscious. That's all I want to do mm-hmm. is use that logic of, "Well, no, I haven't I haven't used the trumpets in a while, so maybe the trumpets could do something here." Uh, uh-huh. Trombones just had an ascending uh, uh, line. Maybe the trumpets can have a descending line. Hmm. You know, something like that. Yeah. And then, oh, now I know what it is. And then I'm back. I'm back in it. Nice. Nice. So, uh, I mean, I talk about all this stuff in my book, I mean, and way more. So I've probably given you about, you know, a few dollars worth of, of the book. So, anyway, <laughs> well, thank you. Oh, you can get like a free lesson here. That's good. Yeah. You guys ask good questions. Oh, thanks. Oh, it's our pleasure. I mean, Aaron, uh, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. I don't know if you have any other questions that are on your pad of paper over there. That's perfect. Yeah, I mean, um, I think we have a, a really great interview. Um, David, thank you so much. Yeah, well, um, just my last word of advice is write and keep writing. Mm. And, you know, don't throw stuff out, stick it in your panel bench. You may come back to it later on when you figure out how to, how to make it work. But the, the key, the people that write the best are the, are the ones that, that, that stick with it. And yeah. aim high. You know, you know listen, listen to the best music that's out there. You know, if you're, if you're listening to Mozart and you're listening to Ellington and you're listening to Miles Davis, you know, all the best people, you'll, even if, you know, you'll, you'll aim for, to do something like that. And if you miss, it won't be that far off. But if you're listening to like mediocre stuff or poor stuff, um, you'll um that stuff gets into your subconscious and that's you are what you eat huh yeah well that actually i guess we just had then uh sorry to fake you out here we have one last question for you last week we played a little game on the show called uh what are you listening to so i guess we that's our final question for you today what are you listening to right now what is on your playlist i was just looking at my at my CD player, and it's actually one of my recordings, but that was because I was editing something for publication. So people give me um, CDs, you know, they make former students and uh, and people I meet, they, um, they they give me CDs. So I'm always checking out new stuff. Stravinsky, I was listening to um, 
Stravinsky violin concerto. Wow. Uh, and, and symphony in C and Rite of Spring. I listened to that. Did I listen to that? Something. No, uh, Song of the Nightingale. Mm. So, yeah, it's just, um, I listen to a wide variety of, of stuff. Um, some Beethoven and Mozart over the weekend. I listen to a lot of jazz. Yeah, <laughs> the whole, absolutely. The whole, the whole history of the music. Um, I got into it in the, it, I got into jazz in the 60s, and so I listened to everything that was coming out then. And, and a lot of records from the 50s because they were all new. But, and then I kind of worked my way backwards, swing era, and then pre, before that, you know, New Orleans and you know, Jelly Roll Morton, all that, I love all that stuff. Yeah. I've transcribed a lot of that. I bet. I bet. You learn a lot. Learn a lot by transcribing. I recommend it. After you've done a lot of that, it gets, I, and I'm just being a musician, I think, it, sometimes it's hard to just listen to something and, and not say, oh, I know what that is. Yeah. You know? Right. I, I try to listen. I, when I hear something for the first time, I try to listen just as like a, a pedestrian, you know, a, and just you know, for the emotional trip that the music takes. I, tr- I try to hear music on that level because ultimately that's really that, what music is in the, in, and all this other stuff. It's just games that us players and, and writers play. Uh-huh. Aaron Copeland talks about that, the, the planes of listening, you know, First plane is the emotional plane. The second plane is the emo like or a different plane, and the the last plane is the musical plane. All the where we like to spend our time as writers and analysts. But I think the best writers are those that can hear their music as a non musician would hear it the first mm. time. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people write music that is not digestible. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. too complicated. Uh, I've, as, I've, as I've gotten older, my music has become simpler and more complex at the same time. Hmm. But it's hmm. certainly easier to, to digest. Certainly easier. It's um, more uh, accessible to the audience. That's really important to me. I think one of the reasons why a lot of people don't listen to jazz is they, they, they think that it's, uh, it makes them feel stupid. And we as jazz performers and presenters need to think about the audience and how to draw them into the music. I never play down to the audience. I never lower our standards. I try to raise the audience's awareness. That's beautiful. We can't thank you enough for being on the show and and imparting your uh, knowledge and wisdom to us. Thank you, David. It was my pleasure. Well, that wraps up our interview with David Berger. It was such an enjoyable experience talking with him about music, jazz history, arranging, and everything else that we got to talk about in the interview. Be sure to check out David's resources, recordings, and blog at suchsweetthundermusic.com and davidbergerjazz.com. As always, we want to hear from you, so please send us an email at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a review on iTunes, join us on Facebook, and let us know what you think. All right, we're looking forward to the next episode. We'll see you there.